0: The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to Economist.com and get your first month free. What's up, y'all? Welcome to Straight White American Jesus. My name is Brad Onishi, faculty at the University of San Francisco, our social center in partnership with the CAP Center at, USC, <laughs> at UCSB. Excuse me. And today, um, maybe I'm a little excited, is a, a big day. We have uh, a special guest. All our guests are special, but uh, it's not every week or every day that you have a sitting member of Congress stop by the show. And, and so we have Representative Jared Huffman. And as we'll talk about in our interview, uh, Representative Huffman is uh, one of the only two sitting Congress people who does not affiliate with a religious tradition, the other being Kirsten Cinema. And as you'll, you'll hear in the interview, he has some pretty clear opinions on, on how she affiliates and how he does. And so we, we also get into something that's of the utmost importance, and that's Christian nationalism. And Representative Huffman is one of the few congresspeople who has drawn attention to the threat that Christian nationalism poses to our democracy. And so our conversation touches on not only the fact that he's one of only uh, two congresspeople who are unaffiliated or nuns, uh, he identifies as a humanist, but also the work that he has done to draw attention to Christian nationalism and doing so with people that are familiar to me and I think many of you, Sam Perry and Catherine Stewart and Andrew Seidel, the Freedom From Religion Foundation and the Baptist Joint Committee. So we had a great conversation. I am incredibly excited and can't wait for you to hear it. Before we get there, I need to let you know that this episode is brought to you by the Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery. The Center for Trauma Resolution and Recovery is made up of a group of trauma-informed practitioners from across the United States who utilize the medium of coaching to provide access to trauma resolution and recovery to clients all over the world. The CTRR specializes in working with individuals who have experienced religious trauma, adverse religious experience, purity culture, faith deconstruction, and the impact of high-control religion or other fundamentalist groups. To learn more or set up your free inquiry call with a practitioner of your choice, head to traumaresolutionandrecovery.com. Dan and I have both worked with the CTRR. Uh, Dan currently is a coach with them and can't say enough about the work that they do. So check it out. All right. It's time to head over to our interview with Representative Huffman. Before we go, I want to say we have our live event in Denver coming November 18. It's a couple of weeks away. Some of you have not bought your tickets because you're waiting and you're procrastinating and time is sneaking up on you. If you use the code Swadge 25 you can get 25% off your virtual ticket. And you need to, to get this done before it's too late. All right. Here's my talk with Congressman Jared Huffman. All right, y'all. As I said, I am joined today with a very special guest, and that is Representative Jared Huffman, who represents California's 2nd District. First, just let me say it's an honor to have you, and thanks for taking the time.
1: Well, it's my pleasure. I appreciate being on this show, and uh, I find the the title of the show fascinating (laughs) and provocative
0: as well. Well, you represent California's 2nd District, which kind of goes from uh, just over the Golden Gate Bridge in in, uh, Marin County. Uh, you know, over to Mendocino, Humboldt, and and then the Oregon border. Personally, I love camping uh in Mendocino and and Casper and Albion. These are places I love. A lot of folks listening who are not perhaps in your district or, or in the Bay Area or Northern California, just they may not have an image of this this part of the coast in their head. So, you know, we need you to say it as we get going here. You're you're the representative. Why is the North Coast the best coast, in your opinion?
1: Well, I think it's, it's a, a slam dunk, the best coast. And for those that just haven't gotten in a car and driven north of the Golden Gate Bridge and kept going, uh, there's this whole other side of California that is north of San Francisco. Um, not the inland Sacramento Valley, but this wonderful north coast. A third of the California coast is north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And a lot of Californians don't realize that. I am fortunate to represent all of it, all the way to Oregon. And uh, you will see if you travel one on one north uh, for several hours that the country is big and grand and spectacular. You mentioned great camping, incredibly rugged coast, just postcard little villages along the Mendocino coast that people want to go to bed and breakfasts and. Enjoy that scene, but just remarkable mountains and massive redwood trees, uh, and you think you're in another world. Uh, just a few hours away, so it, it's it's a pretty spectacular place, as well as having world-class wines and.
0: I was gonna mention any the other, wine. Yeah, I was gonna say Any other things to appreciate. Well, uh, yeah, it, it truly is. I could I could spend three hours talking about just that part of California because I, I feel like a kind of apologist for that coast. But we have something else in common, which is that we're both UCSB grads, and so uh, just want to mention this: we're both Gauchos. You played volleyball. You were an, a three time All American setter at UCSB. UCSB being a, a powerhouse of men's volleyball, and um, I just want to make it clear that we. We share this, not only that we both went to UCSB, but when I was a graduate student there, I was also an athlete. Uh, I played intramural basketball and we once won the C-League championship uh, with other grad students, so. um, That is big. Yeah. Yeah, so I'll I'll let the listeners decide about whose CV kind of you know matches up where, but we'll just say uh, it's always nice to connect with other Gauchos. All right, here's what go Here's what we're here to talk about. Congress is eighty eighty eight percent Christian, uh, give or take you know a, a few percentage points. Six percent Jewish. There are a few Buddhists, a few Hindus, and so on. Kirsten Sinema's in the Senate and uh, identifies as somebody who's unaffiliated with a religious tradition as a nun, as as we call it. You're the only member of Congress of the House who falls in what is the kind of other category when it comes to religious affiliation because you identify as a humanist. And so, I'm just wondering if you can share a little bit about when you began to publicly identify as a humanist and why it yeah. felt like that was important for you to do.
1: Well, uh I'm happy to do that and and let me say that I also frequently see myself listed with Kirsten Cinema as being, you know, the two sort of enigmatic no religion assigned to them. Uh, Kirsten has not been nearly as candid as I have been about my religious views. She's coy at best. uh, And even though privately for years, she liked telling people she was an atheist uh, because that was part of her whole provocative shtick that she liked, um, she's become a very cautious and enigmatic in different ways uh, politician. So. I wouldn't give her too much credit for ducking these questions and and dodging a a label. Why did I decide to kind of come out as not having a God belief? Uh, And I'm the only one to candidly say that in Congress. I do not believe in a sky God. I have my own notions of morality and science and creation and other things. but I I did it because I got tired of ducking the question. You get asked all the time on questionnaires and interviews, these sort of standard things, and they create profiles of members of Congress. And you know, religion is always right there. And it it, it didn't work for me uh, to just continue to say none of the above or to to be coy about it. I th- I think people are really forgiving and understanding of whatever your religious view is if you're their representative. Um, but they want to authentically know what makes you tick. And, you know, where does your moral framework come from? Where do you see yourself in the scheme of the universe? It's okay. I mean, it's a legitimate question. And it's not a religious test. You know, our constitution prohibits religious tests. But I think it's okay for people to want to know those things about you. So that was it. Uh, I, my uh, dear mother was um, 87 at the time and deeply religious. I thought it would be a little hurtful for her. Uh, for me to do it. But when she passed away uh, in 2017, there was really no reason for me to sidestep the question anymore.
0: It, it really speaks, I think, to not only your own journey and how you have tried to be authentic with who you are and and, and how you identify as a, as a member of Congress, but I think it also speaks to just the millions of Americans who are looking for someone to represent uh, their, uh, their uh, religious and or non-religious identity in Congress. And I, so I'm wondering, you know, what, why this is important for, for folks who, who may take on the label of humanist or agnostic or free thinker, uh, yeah. others who are religiously unaffiliated. You know, as you, as you talk to folks, what does this mean to them?
1: Well, I have come to find that it means a lot uh, for them to feel represented, in a sense, um, for them to uh, feel less uh, disparaged. Um, you know, it's, th- there's a lot of nuns out there, a lot of atheists and agnostics and humanists, uh, statistically, I believe these nuns are the fastest growing religious demographic in America. So, you know, we're at a point where it's gotta be okay to be one of them and to advocate for them not being discriminated against uh, and maligned, which they continue to be, uh, and By the way, we also see so many religious phonies in politics. Uh, And that's another part of why I thought it was important to kind of come out. There are fakers all over the place, people that pretend to be devout Christians that really are not. And that has bothered me more and more as the years go by. So I just wanted to, you know, put those cards on the table and be real about it. And it's ended up being perfectly fine. Politically, there there was no backlash. There was no political price that I paid. Uh, if anything, it's it's been a positive.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I I I know there are people listening right now who are thankful that you you came out with this decision and this identity, and, and that it means a lot to them. Uh, a little while later, you you formed the Free Thought Caucus with a couple of other representatives, Jamie Raskin, who many folks are familiar with now because of the select the J six Select Committee and Representative Jerry McNerney and and a few others. What was the impetus to to do that, and what does the Free Thought Caucus stand for?
1: Yeah, so after I came out, and there was a big Washington Post story on you know me being this novelty in the Congress, um, I was having some conversations with my friend Jamie Raskin. Jerry McNerney kind of came to be part of that as well because he's a science guy. He's he's a, like a PhD mathematician and and very much of a. Um, he's into science and reality uh, when it comes to the universe and astrophysics and everything else you get a lot of humanists and atheists and agnostics in that space um so anyway we shared a deep concern about the encroachment of religion into our politics uh in a whole bunch of different ways i mean the supreme court and where it's been taking this tortured interpretation of religious liberty The institutions that we see in Congress, like the Congressional Prayer Breakfast, uh, which has become this, you know, huge thing that is a total, uh, you know, encroachment of religion into the public space. And it's become a huge political power center, basically. Uh, And there was really nothing on the other side as a counterweight to defend the line of separation between church and state and to, to aggressively advocate for the secular character of our government. So that was kind of the inspiration was that maybe we should
0: create something that could begin to do that. It's incredible that, uh, it's I, well, there's a lot of things that are incredible here. One is that that being a, a free thinker and a humanist would be such an anomaly in our Congress in 2022 and that we hadn't had uh, something similar to, or, or such as the Free Thought Caucus before this, this really brings us to something that, uh, you know, for my show and for Straight White American Jesus and everything that I work on really uh, was, was very important. And that is in March of this year, you and, and your Free Thought colleagues in the house held a hearing on Christian nationalism. And you've been one of the few people in the house uh, or in both houses of, of Congress who've talked about this. And you invited the likes of Andrew Seidel and Sam Perry, Catherine Stewart, you know, all friends of the program, all friends of mine, all, all people whose work uh, we talk about all the time, they came to testify about the dangers of Christian nationalism. Uh, following on a publication of a report by the Freedom From Religion Foundation and the Baptist Joint Committee, you know, as one of the only members of either house kind of sounding the alarm on Christian nationalism, what motivated you to do that?
1: Yeah, honestly, what motivated me to reach out to Andrew and others uh, about this was the the strong evidence that Christian nationalism was at the heart of the January 6th insurrection. I mean, I watched those events unfold and I saw the symbology and the slogans and the absurd, you know, Christian prayers on the floor of the Senate after they had, you know, spread feces all over the place and wrecked the place and caused people to be injured and, and killed. It was a spectacle, but Christian nationalism was at the heart of the spectacle. It was, just seemed obvious to me. So I wanted to see if the, the smart folks out there who's, who research these things uh, were finding that to be the case. And it uh, turns out, absolutely, that was the case. This was the connective tissue that kind of held this motley crew together on January 6th.
0: I've read, you know, quotes from you and and things that you've said about Christian nationalism being perhaps the thing that people just still don't comprehend about the Capitol riot—the fact that there was an integrating mechanism. Uh, yes, there were various uh, groups and and individuals with various motives and various identities, but in, in many ways, the, the Christian nationalist identity was really a, an integrating force, a mechanism that helped all of them kind of find a, a, a common thread. I'm wondering, you know, after hearing from Sam, hearing from Andrew, hearing from Catherine and, and others, uh, what did you come away with coupled with your view sitting as a member of Congress? Uh, did, it, did it further kind of instantiate the problem of Christian nationalism, whether it's related to January 6th or just uh, our republic as we head into midterms and, and people start to vote?
1: Well, I think one thing we achieved is that we made it okay to call out Christian nationalism and white Christian nationalism. And I've been encouraged to see that happening more and more, more of cable news shows and, uh, you know, journalists and others, our own national security establishment Uh seems to be getting over the skittishness here and and I guess it's understandable in this country white people would be nervous about criticizing something that has the name christian in it it sounds like you are you know disparaging christianity and of course you know these Christian Christian nationalists are always claiming to be aggrieved and uh you know discriminated against the war on Christmas and other nonsense that they are constantly propagating to make It seemed like Christians in America are a persecuted class, which is absurd, absolutely preposterous. Uh, But I think that's what has made a lot of people nervous about just honestly calling out this central role that Christian nationalism plays here. So I think we helped with that. I I think we helped
0: uh, make it okay to call it what it is. It's amazing the privilege that one has, and I've talked about this many times in the show. Uh, if you identify as a Christian, there's just a the kind of benefit of the doubt that comes along with that, and, and that extends all the way to January 6th writers and others. And as yeah. you're saying, it takes a lot of work and intentionality to uh, make it so that you can actually provide a, a substantive criticism that gets past the alarm bells of people saying, well, you're not allowed to just attack my faith or to, to victimize me, et cetera. Just a couple of months ago, you did something that that I think was also notable and I just want to make sure people know about, which is you sent a letter to the IRS and to Janet Yellen and others talking about uh, the need to review the the Family Research Council and uh, its tax-exempt status and, and uh, the ways that it operates uh, supposedly as a church that is tax-exempt, but does things that uh, seem to burst out of those categories. I, I'm just wondering if if you for a moment would, again, just talk about that, because I, that's not something I'm sh- I don't think that most listeners uh, uh, know about. I don't think they've seen a headline, but many yeah. folks listening right now will be clapping. I mean, they will be celebrating the fact that somebody is trying to hold the Family Research Council to account because they are full of hate speech and they're they're always blurring this boundary between church uh, and political arm. Well, I I would say they're not
1: really blurring it. They're all politics all the time, Uh, but they do their politics in the name of religion. And that's what has gotten us to this just unbelievable place where the IRS allowed them to become legally a church. And you just can't even believe that that would happen because they don't meet any of the objective uh, criteria to be treated as a church. We all know they were trying to gain church status so that they would have less scrutiny of their finances, of their big dark money donors, of their activities and how they spend their money. Um, and it's all about that. But, you know, the Republicans and the right-wing evangelicals have so beaten down the IRS in recent years. I mean, from the Lois Lerner thing, and, you know, I, th- I think that the IRS... Just stopped doing its job and just found the path of least resistance. Just sure, we'll just call it a church. They want to be called a church, we'll let them do it. Uh, and that's a terrible place to be. We already have uh, n- not even close to enough visibility into the dark money political machines that are dominating our elections these days. And now we have so called churches out there running amok. So, uh, yeah, we wrote the letter. We're calling for scrutiny and Reconsideration, uh, and we'll see what comes of it. It
0: it brings a new wrinkle to the opposition to the uh, you know the eighty seven thousand IRS agents and and the the the, the beefed up personnel at the IRS and the opposition to that coming from the GOP coming from uh, the American right. Uh, you know, you 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 think about. What goes into somebody being or an organization being a tax-exempt organization like the Family Research Council, how many millions and tens of millions of dollars that means and what that means for their status in the country. And all of a sudden, all of those comments about uh, the IRS and, and opposing its its new army come into light as a, as a, as a, kind, of, uh, as a kind of prop for that that war. You know, I I research this. You know, Representative Huffman. I, I research this stuff all day and all night. This is kind of my job as mm-hmm. a professor, as a as a as a writer, as a podcaster. Um, and I I try to keep up on what's happening. You know, mega churches in San Jose, militia groups in Shasta, Michael Flynn on the Reawaken America tour, yep. baptizing black robe regiment uh, pastors. But your perspective is different than mine, a- and everyone's listening. I mean, you have an inside position, uh, an upfront view. I, you said on the House floor that Christian nationalism is infecting our government. And so I guess I'm just wondering if we zoom out here um, and, and just ask you point blank, from where you're sitting, what does it all look like? Because from where I am, it, it, looks, it looks pretty devastating in terms of the ways Christian nationalism is affecting our elections, is affecting the, the ways that people vote, is affecting the kinds of candidates that are being held up, uh, and just the overall future of our democracy. So wondering what it looks like from where you're sitting.
1: Well, it it looks grim. Um, I have more and more colleagues now serving in the United States Congress that um, not only tolerate this stuff, but uh, actually incite it and uh, use it and monetize it uh, for their political campaigns. Got Marjorie Taylor Greene, you know, going into churches uh, and proclaiming herself a, a Christian nationalist without probably even understanding what it means. But I think she probably does qualify um uh, so it's it's menacing uh and when you combine it with this radical supreme court that is very much driving the christian nationalist agenda uh in not even subtle ways uh and you combine it with the the divisions in our politics and the the conflict and the violence that's beginning to creep in to all of it um it's deeply troubling, and it's it's, I think, one of the more difficult parts of a difficult political climate that I'm trying to serve in. So uh, I call it out all the time. Uh, I've got a growing number of colleagues that I think are beginning to understand that, yeah, that really is what's going on. that really does need to be confronted. Um, and I hope that whether it's your good work as an educator and a um, an academic, uh, folks in the media beginning to call attention to this and those of us that are willing to put our necks out in politics that that we can turn this thing around because I don't want to live in a theocracy and certainly not a dystopic like Margaret Atwood novel theocracy. And uh, we are on our way there uh, if we don't do a lot more to confront this threat.
0: Well, that was going to be my next question. Uh, you know, We've done a lot on this show to talk about what's at stake uh, in the midterms, I'm just wondering, from your perspective, what's at stake? Are, you know, it, it, it feels as if we're not entering into a typical midterm season. Uh, we're seeing voting in Georgia go through the roof in terms of turnout already. Uh, we're seeing billions in, of dollars being poured into elections all over the place. And in my view, it's, there's a lot at stake here in terms of the future of what this country looks like. In your view, what is at stake in these 2022 midterms?
1: Uh, I, I don't want to just uh, traffic in hyperbole and fear mongering or anything like that, but I I truly think everything is at stake. I think if if you want this democratic republic to continue as we know it, uh, it's on the line. It is at great risk. the The House of Representatives that uh, we elect to count the electoral votes in the twenty 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 four election uh, has the ability to either accept the will of the voters or override it and reject it, or even collude with some of these Southern states that appear to be interested in um, in rigging their elections. So we may lose it. Uh, we may lose the ability to have a Democratic, Republican and presidential and other elections where the voters actually uh, drive the outcomes. And I think this election, more than any I can ever remember, is is putting that to the test. So it's a big deal. And there's more than that at stake, obviously, you know, the climate crisis is huge, existential, and uh, we are on the verge of either stepping up and confronting it at the scale that we need to, uh, or entering to the fossil fuel industry and maybe passing an unlivable planet onto our kids and grandkids. So uh, again, I I hate to just, uh, you know, seemingly (laughs) <laughs> scare people or uh, try to alarm people, but this is really going on. Uh, and it's really at stake. And I sure hope everybody gets out and votes because this, this will be 100% about turnout. Uh, if the women of America and the other awakened Americans who care about women and these other issues turn out and vote, we will be okay. If they don't, we're in a world of trouble.
0: I, this is the question I get all the time. You know, you, you kind of led us there, right? We are, we're pretty, we're pretty honest and bleak on this show. And, and the emails I get are, are, are often, I agree with you. What can I do? You know, what's the way I can get involved. And so let me ask you that in two ways. I I live in California. Uh, I, I teach at the university of San Francisco. I have a state with a democratic governor and democratic senators. There's a large democratic majority in our state legislature So if I'm I'm a person like that, whether that's here in California or somewhere else, what can I do? What are the ways that, that from from your perspective, somebody could get involved, whether that's in races in in their own state or their own community or elsewhere? How does that work?
1: Well, if you want to actually get out on the ground and knock on doors and help candidates, uh, there is a very close frontline race uh, about a hundred miles from here. Josh Harder is the Democrat who's being targeted by uh, millions and millions of dollars of dark money to take him out and turn that into a Republican seat. This majority in the House could come down to just a few swing states or swing districts. So that's one very close by where people could go and make a difference. But there are ways to help out with postcards and texting and phone banking. Uh, without even leaving your home these days. It's really easy. You just go onto your computer and there's web-based apps that walk you right through it. And that grassroots uh, work uh, is going to be critical as well. So if folks are interested in that, it's it's pretty easy to sort of Google your way to that solution. But the, the DCCC, which is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, has all of these online
0: tools, and it's easy to find online. I'm really glad you brought up the, that race with Harder because I think one of the things that some uh, Californians assume is that well, my state is, is so democratically represented that, that the work here is done, and so there's not a need to kind of uh, to worry about it. But there's a there's a, a situation in which Democratic House. Pickups in this state would really help with with the you know the, the Democrats can, keeping a, a majority in the House going forward. And so, if you're a Californian, it's not like well you know this is kind of a, th- this is all said and done. Whether that's living in Nancy Pelosi's district or your district or uh, out in Bakersfield and saying well you know Kevin McCarthy is just going to win anyway. There's a lot at stake in this state. And I guess just last question here as we wrap up is you know there's key, there's key races that everyone's watching Arizona. Georgia, yeah. uh, Wisconsin, I think it feels overwhelming. If I watch M- MSNBC at night and I'm, a, I'm just a, a normal American who goes to work every day, yeah. it's like, I don't know what to do because the whole world feels like it's crumbling. What advice would you give to that person? Uh, well, despair is not very
1: productive. It rarely leads to solutions. So no one should just tune out and give up because this is all scary and overwhelming. We got to stay in the arena. We got to keep fighting. So just do whatever you can. Uh, If you can cut a check to someone out there who is running in one of these key races or to some of the oversight groups that are lawyered up and ready to confront um, the Republicans who may attempt to steal elections or may attempt to suppress the vote. I'm talking about, you know, ACLU and MALDEF and uh, groups like that. Uh, Stacey Abrams' group is is doing a great job as well. Those are great ways to, I, I think, do your part. And uh, again, just keep doing what you can. That's all any of us can do is just get back in the arena
0: and do what you can. We always encourage people to do one thing, and I think that's you can't do everything. But if if you do one thing, then that is a way to to contribute and to to kind of dispel some of that despair, which is pretty tempting at times. Uh, it, it's it's a, it's a tempting. Abyss to fall into. Um, last question is just: Do you have plans, or are there ways that we can work together to make sure that UCSB is sort of designated as the principal UC and recognized as the best one, uh, as it relates to all of these sort of, you know, ne'er do wells in Berkeley, and you know, I know I, I have heard of one down in LA, and uh, there's a couple, in, there's one in Irvine and San Diego, but. I mean, I I just would love to see something, uh, you know, put forth. If you if you have any plans to work on that, so
1: well, we we probably need to keep the other UC campuses because not everyone can get into yeah. UCS.
0: Okay, yeah. Uh,
1: so just as sort of spillover facilities, uh, but there's no <laughs> doubt that uh, UCSB has become uh, the the point of light in in the UC <laughs> system, if not the entire universe. So uh, proud that we have that in common. And I again, want to commend you on uh, the name of your podcast. It's, it's kind of fun and farcical, but it also
0: really does capture who these white Christian nationalists think they are. And uh, it's not a joke. I know you're right, because I get emails from The Daily Wire and others that want to advertise on the show, not knowing that it's a yeah. uh, sarcastic name. So uh, <laughs> that's, I'll just leave that there. We need, to, we need to wrap up. I want to say thank you so much, Representative Huffman, for your time, for your insight, and also just for the work you're doing to draw attention to the threat that Christian nationalism is to our democracy. People can link up with you online, uh, on your your Twitter accounts and other things. Is there any any other ways that you'd like to, to draw people in terms of connecting with your efforts on the Hill or other places?
1: That would be a great way to do it. If they want to follow me on social media, I will try to give them lots of interesting content, uh, just like you're doing. So thanks for your leadership as well, and uh, enjoyed being with you. Thanks so much.
0: This has been an Irreverent Media Podcast.